so um, I was confused by um, looking at what the recording said um, about where we were in Mark, and I never really got it sorted out. Uh, I think that maybe our recording on SoundCloud is... Uh, um, uh, uh, we've maybe got it labeled... Uh, wrong, uh, but I'll take uh, any degree of correction uh, that you guys want to give me. Um, I seem to think that we were past. Um, let's see. We were past eight. We had fed 5,000. Um, Okay, so we're feeding the 4,000. So. Yeah, um, it actually says uh, in the recording that I went to eight, but that is incorrect. We were talking about uh, the Pharisees and the issue of washing. Um and my recollection, okay, no, that does make sense. So anyway, let's do this. Uh, Jesus, the Pharisees were upset because the disciples didn't wash their hands. According to the uh, tradition, Jesus begins to correct them. Verse 6, we had talked about, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men for Laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. So I'll pick up uh, right there. Um, so these traditions, and we made comparisons about our traditions and the, the things that people hold to uh, that come uh, from religion. They, they are not from the word of God and how dangerous that is when we hold to traditions that especially nullify the word of God. Um, you know, I'll, I'll point out again that, you know, a large section of what calls itself Christendom, uh, you know, prays to Mary. You know, there, there's a tradition that has nothing to do with the scripture and it nullifies the word of God because we're told that there's only one mediator between God and man. So we have to be careful of things that especially nullify the word of God that way. Continuing in verse 9, he said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. He who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. That comes out of Exodus 20. Uh, but you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever Prophet, you might have received from me is Corbin, that is a gift to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his father, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. So, this religious practice it was um, mostly conducted amongst the um, religious elite those that were in leadership, but a quick summary, I know I'm overgeneralizing it, but a quick summary is they would come to the priests at the temple, pay a sum of money to the temple and say, all that I have is a gift to God. All, all that I have is Corbin. So it's now a gift to God. And the priests would usually give them some script that said that this ceremony and practice had taken place. What it came down to was the sum of money. They pay the sum of money and they get the certificate. And so then when mom and dad, maybe right then, are older and in need and saying, you know, we've come to the place, can't work anymore. Can we come live with you? Can you can you give us money? Can you help us? They say, I'd love to, dad, but I don't actually own anything. You know, it all belongs to the Lord. It's all Corbin. And so they would nullify their responsibility to their parents and not care for them 
by going through this ritual of declaring everything Corbin. And, uh, you know, I mean, if you had given everything to the Lord, that would be one thing, but you've retained it. Okay. So you've kept it for yourself. And what you're doing is not sharing with others. So you put this umbrella protection over everything you all can't, can't give you, can't lend to you, can't, can't let you borrow. Unless of course I want to, you know, so, so there's just this sleight of hand thing. And, and if you're thinking like, oh, well, so when they pass away, then it would be given to the temple. Not always, <laughs> you know, they work this whole thing out so that it was completely a benefit to them. It was a wink and a nod. You know, and, the, and as such, they're nullifying the, their God given responsibility to their parents. It's a great tragedy, uh, you know, that's being described here. Verse 14, when he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the thing which come out, the things which come out of him, these are the things that uh, defile a man, you know, the things is spoken. And he's going to talk about it. if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had entered the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he goes on to explain uh, the, the quick summary as we move forward is, you know, it, it, it's your behavior and your actions and your words. You know, this isn't, you know, some people go too far with it. So, you know, you, you know, they, there's a, you know, a culture that you know, acts like, oh, we can just eat anything. You know, it doesn't matter. And, and I'm, I'm saying in a sinful regard, okay, you say, well, how can anything be sinful? Well, you know, some people are drunkards, right? Uh, some people do poison themselves with drugs. You know, it isn't, it isn't in the consuming. Yeah, well, you know, the, there's a defilement within you that's compelling you towards the consumption. Don't get it wrong, okay? You need to really get, you know, a, a, a clear understanding of your relationship with God. This isn't an excuse uh, for, you know, consuming whatever you want. You know, nothing defiles me. No, in fact, in those cases, as I say again, you're already defiled. That's why you're wanting to consume them. Okay, so, so listen as we follow verse 18. So he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? And this is, again, we're on the spiritual realm here, right? We're, we're talking about, uh, you know, Jesus, their, their, their special method of washing their hands. So it, it doesn't defile you, doesn't you know, defile him from the outside because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods and he said what comes out of a man that defiles a man for from within out of the heart of a man proceed evil thoughts adulteries fornications murders thefts covetousness wickedness deceit lewdness an evil eye blasphemy pride foolishness all these evil things come from within and defile a man. Uh, Jesus clarifies it perfectly. And, and yet, you know, we still have the mentality uh, within certain levels of Christianity, like, you know, if you wear certain clothes, you're defiled. You know, I, I, there are still groups of Christianity that say if women wear pants, you know, that that's especially wicked. You know, it's it's a foolishness of self-imposed religion that Paul talks about in the book of Colossians that we shouldn't be intimidated by any of these things because none of these things that, that are assigned by the religion of men help us in restraining ourselves against the, the sinful appetites of our flesh. You know, put all kinds of religious dietary restraints upon yourself you know the clothing the practice all these rituals and in the end what does it do to make you any more holy absolutely nothing your heart can be full of corruption right this is the group 
that presently is planning how they might kill Jesus. They're building a plot. You know, they've got they've literally got murderous thoughts about this man in their heart, but they, they're all hung up with, oh, you didn't wash your hands right. You know, I mean, think about the weird stuff we've seen, okay? I'm not trying to go a direction we shouldn't, but think about the weird stuff we've seen on all these different documentaries about these crazy people, right, who, who have killed people, you know, planted bombs, done weird stuff, but they keep all these other special, you know, things that they're obsessive about, you know, cleanliness or some weird thing. The wickedness is in the heart. And often when you find people um, that have these obsessions, what you find is there's great evil. Right? They, they, they've, got, they've built their own little religious box and they keep all the rules. Uh, but, uh, you know, you find other areas like, you know, if, if we were to discover them, they're horrendous. I'm just having a discussion um, I, when I first gave my life to Christ, um, I, I turned myself into the police. I went to jail, uh, briefly did my time, got out. And <clears throat> because of life's circumstances, I sort of found myself on a spiritual Island in New Hampshire with, uh, you know, nobody around briefly to lead and guide me. And so a friend came to me sent by the devil. I now know today who was like, hey, I got saved too. You should start coming to my Bible studies. So what do I know? I go to his Bible studies and I'm several months into it and I've been arguing with them all along the way when I realize these guys are the Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay, and I've never dealt with them before. So I don't know the differences. I don't know how dangerous this all is. What I'm startled to find as time passes is how much abuse. I, I, I found this out because <clears throat> I was in a confrontational meeting with an, one of their elders and one of their converts, and I kept cornering verbally the elder with the word of God. Right? I didn't even know what I was doing. I wasn't like doing it from some trained skill. I'm just reading massive sections of the Bible every day because I've given my life to Christ. And so he brings up a subject and I'm like, well, that doesn't sound right. Because when I read the beginning of the chapter, he doesn't want to read the beginning of the chapter. He just wants to take this verse out of context and link it to this verse out of context and this verse out of context. So I just keep dismantling, you know, what he has to say. I'm, I'm like 20 years old, just wet faced, don't have any idea what I'm talking about. Like, gosh, golly, you know, what about these verses? And it's driving him crazy. <clears throat> and I'm just, and I'm, I'm embarrassing him because we're in a Bible study. So there's a group of people that are supposed to be impressed with this guy. And here I am 20 years old, just like, hey, what about this? You know what I'm saying? And it's blowing him up. Well, it gets to the point where I've driven everybody else out of the house. Right. I've destroyed the Bible study. And I don't even realize that. I'm just asking honest questions. And I'm down to the convert and the elder. And in the midst of going through this discussion, this dude literally leaps across the room and grabs me by the throat. Okay. Got me pinned on the couch, choking me. <clears throat> in the midst of this, there was a brief moment of panic. And I didn't hear a voice. But in my heart, I, I heard this question of, uh, can you breathe? This guy's choking me for all he's worth. And I thought, I can breathe. And the Lord said to my heart, this guy has no power over you. And I took his hands and just pulled them off my throat. And he's straining for all his worth. And it wasn't because, it was a thing of the Lord. It wasn't my strength. And I just stood up and said, you've just showed me everything I need to know about this whole thing. I processed for months what had gone on in that setting. And what the Lord showed me was, of course, he's going to behave that way. Because as much as he knows about his religion, he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. How tragic is that? You know what I'm saying? Like trained beyond your wildest imaginations 
in the wiles of the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? He could, you know, dismantle most anybody. And, but because I'm in the word of God, the word of God is dismantling him. And he finally flies to the rage that comes naturally to all of us. That's a natural man. That's an unconverted man sitting there. He's not, listen to me, he's not spiritual at all. Not even remotely. These men are not spiritual at all. Internally, right, full of dead men's bones, corruption, murder, the rot is in the heart. And so recently, you know, I'm having that discussion again about, you know, the person I'm talking to is, you know, how dedicated, how spiritual the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons and others are. And I had to point out, no, they're not. They're not spiritual at all. Zealous. Okay, zealous. I'll give them that, right? But we know lots of zealous radicals in our culture today that do terrible, murderous things. They got all kinds of religious practices. But when it comes down to actually being governed by the Lord, that their heart is no way. No, not even remotely. And you'll find that even within what calls itself Christianity. Just all these profound practices and methods and rules and regulations. And then you find out that they're doing terrible things, abusive things, wretched things. None of us should be surprised, right? If you see that highly religious, ritualistic behavior, you can almost assume that that's going on in their life, right? Because the Lord doesn't produce that. A relationship with the Lord is going to purify you inside and, and you might have some purified practices on the outside, but it's not going to be some religious code that you're trying to force upon everyone else. Freedom in Christ. It, you know, these people don't have it at all. Oh, they're very religious, but they're in. We say it all the time, don't we? It's not religion. It's relationship. And this is what it comes down to. You follow the practices of religion. You will be ultra-legalistic in one or more areas. You'll, you know, you, you'll have all these rules and regulations, but in the end, the junk is still in the heart. The wickedness is still present. And this is what Jesus is pointing out to them. I think it's important we understand the broader generalization, right? <clears throat> Here specifically, you know, the practice is the washing of hands that kicked this all off. But when we examine, you know, a branch of Christianity, ultra-legalistic, you can know that this practice is the same. All this legalism, the corruption is still in place. You know, move over to the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, Islam, wherever. You've got this ultra-brand of, of legalism and religious practice in place. The corruption is there. Because they're trying to achieve what we have achieved through relationship. They're trying to achieve through religion. So consider verse 24. From there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and wanted to uh, no one to know it. But he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit, heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For this is saying, Go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and had, excuse me, and her daughter lying on the bed that is resting and still. So the point to dwell on is this issue of the dogs. 
the the woman's persistence in this. She keeps asking. She keeps insisting. And then that statement of it's not right to give to the little dogs. So uh, there is within this culture, um, the, uh, the Jews would commonly refer to the Gentiles as dogs. But it, it is a, a more vicious dog than what Jesus is terming here. And he tames it down purposely, pun intended. So the statement of, you know, you, you know you're a dog, basically, is not as insultive as the average Jew might have given to a Gentile. You know, their um, packs of wild dogs were all around cities and cultures and um, traveling on the road, road alone could be dangerous. You know, a pack of dogs uh, could overwhelm you as an individual and kill you. Uh, so traveling in pairs, always walking with a stick, you know, things that you could protect and defend yourself with. They got used to the fact that the wild dogs are there. They're dangerous, but like, don't run, right? Because that's how the dog's going to win. He's going to chase you, wear you down and take you out. So stand your ground, you know, swing the stick, be loud, drive the dogs off is the sense. And and this was like an an equal understanding of Gentiles and dogs, these wild dogs, these packs of dogs that were dangerous and annoying and ever present. And you've got to be on watch the little dogs. The Jews would actually allow their children, particularly their daughters to have puppies. And when they got older, they would get rid of the puppies. Okay which is part of the reason that they had packs of wild dogs around. Okay, they're creating this for themselves. Point being, Jesus comes really close to calling her a dog as the common people would call Gentiles dogs. She's a Gentile, Syrophoenician Greek, not Jewish. But she has a tenderness of heart to say yes but even essentially what she's saying in the Jewish homes, you allow for the puppies to be raised by your children and they're fed from the bread that is given to the children under the table. She's saying, couldn't you just slip me a little bit of what I need right now? Right? Beg, ask, insist, don't stop. Even when the seeming insult comes. She doesn't back away from the one that she knows has the answer. Okay. Um, How many people have we run into that won't go to church because they feel somehow they were slighted somewhere along the way? You know, I went to a church one time and those people corrected me and, you know, said harsh things to me and, made me feel like I should never go back there, right? They called me a dog, essentially. The answer still lies within Jesus. You, you still need to go and insist. And notice, right, that the, the point of this is, right, the Holy Spirit made sure we understood Jesus was trying to be alone once again, Right? trying to have some time to himself with the disciples, just not have to you know, exert all this energy, not have to go through all of this process, and yet this one person insisting. Have, have you felt like I've banged on this door forever? I've asked for this thing for so long now, all my life. I've been needing this in my life, and now you're examining yourself and thinking, I am nothing but a dog. You know, there was a time where I thought I was at least religious enough to just bow at Jesus' feet and ask and ask and ask, but 
my own corruption has led me to the place where I agree with the idea that I'm nothing but a dog. Well, take to heart the fact that if you continue insisting, he will answer. He will be there, right? When he says, if you knock, it will be open to you. That, that is the, the perfect constant. You know, if you continually knock without ceasing, if you ask, right, you'll be answered. If you seek, you will find. It isn't just the, how many, how many times have we heard that statement, right? Talk about the Bible and somebody says, oh, I read the Bible. You know, like it was the Hobbit or something. You know, just I read, I read that. You know, I read the Bible. This is this is you know a reference book of relationship and love letter that you're going to be reading for the rest of your life. You know, continue to seek, continue to knock, continue to ask. Do not stop. In the process, you will find, you will hear, you will receive. You have that guarantee. It isn't because I'm up here insisting upon it. It's because the scripture, the Lord himself inspired this writing and said, I will reward those who diligently seek me. Diligently seek me. You know, Hebrews wasn't wrong when it told us that. If we would insistently press and inquire and need to know and not, you know, that, 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 that very dangerous position of acting like, well, you know, no, it's never coming of other people, but not for me. That giving up is so dangerous, right? And most of us, I can see on your faces, most of us have come to that point somewhere along the way. And we have to realize you know, what the Lord is encouraging us here with is that pressing on, not stopping, insistence to the Lord, waiting for him, the deliverance from the demonic. Verse 31, again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis. And, and so now here, this is realistically the third pass, right? Because he was in the region of Decapolis when he met the man at the Gadarene tombs and he told him to stay there and he's come back on this occasion and there was such a great response to him and now pass through again the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him uh, one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he uh, sighed and said to him, Ephtha, and that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Um, there's a lot uh, to this that's remarkable. Um, <clears throat> you probably know people who um, had um, uh, hearing problems in their youth, um, particularly before the age of nine. Um, the, there's an interesting thing. Um, I, I've heard people say, you know, since I've lived in this area, I've developed an accent. Since I've since I've lived in this area, I've 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 lost my accent. Okay, well, I, I'm not. You know, we all know the term anecdotal, right? That that you know the common opinion of all is assumed to be correct. Well, here's the deal: um, <clears throat> our brain hardens, literally becomes physically more and more hard uh, throughout our lifetime, and uh, it's that's part of the reason. That it's so difficult, right? Yeah, and some of you are like going, yeah, hard-headed. You know, so I'm okay. So here's the, it's all of us. It, our, our brain hardens, 
and uh, it comes in stages. Um, uh, One of the biggest steps and the greatest hardening happens uh, around 19 years old. Um, That's adulthood. That's one of the the final phases of of real. That's why a child who sustains a brain injury that robs them of speech and walking and all of those functions recovers very rapidly compared to an adult, right? Because their brain has hardened. So to reform the pathways as an adult is very, very difficult. For a child, those things are being developed all the time as they grow. By nine years old, speech is one of your most central um, uh, motor functions, uh, your cognizance and your motor functions. And so by nine, your accent is locked in. Okay, You're probably not going to develop any further accent lose or gain it's it's right there if you were raised in france and know how to speak english and have very deep french accent after nine you can move to america and when you're 50 you're still going to have the accent you had you will pick up colloquialisms and phraseology right and cadence but the accent is present it's it's locked in the mind all of that because this man demonstrates what we know of speech development interruption. So hearing problem has led to speech impediment, okay? Because inside the head, growing up as he was learning speech, he probably was hearing his own voice. People that lose their hearing much later in life have no speech impediment because that's locked in. Their speech pattern is known. So even when they have no hearing, they understand the vibration of the vocal cord. They understand the influx. The thing that will be lost is volume. They get very loud because they they have that sensation that no one can hear me. Uh, The point, like, you go do all your research on all of that on your own. I'm not trying to teach some science class. What I'm saying is Jesus heals this man, and that's all assembled. That, That is an impossibility. He he fixes this guy in such a way that speech patterns that would have had to have been developed as a child are corrected in his adult life. This is a, this is miraculous beyond your imagination. You fix the ear, fine. Okay, the 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 developmental speech pattern in the brain doesn't change for for people that have suffered this. Okay, and it doesn't go either way. Like I said, if a person loses their hearing, it doesn't create this type of stammering speech impediment. Okay, so so we get the picture that this must have happened, and and uh, you know maybe before he was born, maybe he was deaf at birth, and so all of his speech pattern has been improperly developed. You know, h- however, it was the, the the miracle lies in the healing. This is why I say so very often, yes, we want to pray that the doctors will have wisdom, but please don't let your heart build a barricade there. Because Christ's healing is so superior to whatever men can do. You know, let's please, you know, as the Syrophoenician woman, let's plead with the Lord for his medical treatment, his healing, his work in someone's life that that completeness uh, you know that full touch of the creator is so superior I, I praise God for the wisdom that he's given men Jesus endorses doctors for you know those cults and branches of Christianity that say oh no doctors not okay you know the the, the Lord himself said the sick need a physician <laughs> the doctors are not bad you know in most cases, but you know, the idea that whatever they can provide us with is inferior to whatever Jesus. And and yet we, we turn to the Tylenol so quickly. We turn to the, you know, over the counter, whatever, so quickly. You know, if, if, if you're sick and you need, uh, you know, the doctor's attention and medication, go get it. <laughs> don't, don't hesitate. Go get it. But don't, don't misplace Jesus' authority. 
you need the Lord's touch more, more. Look, that we know, right? Have we not been to the doctors and walked away knowing what that person just told me was numb? You know, much as we love them, much as we appreciate them, right? So when you're praying, Lord, give this doctor wisdom. Oh, beg him. You know what I'm saying? You, you know, you need him to work in the doctor, need to work in the process, need the Lord's healing above and beyond. You know, there's a great picture here for, for Jesus' capability and what it provides for us. So this man, they're all astonished, the community. Verse 1 of chapter 8, in those days, the multitude... Uh, being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. Now, you, you've got to know that what's going to happen right here is the apostles are going to immediately recognize uh, Jesus' capabilities from their past, and they're just going to ask him to perform a miracle again and feed all of these people because, I mean, nobody would be numb enough to have been through these experiences in the past and then turn around and, you know, behave out of the flesh and, you know, even throw in a few accusations. Nobody would be that stupid, right? I mean, clearly as disciples of Jesus Christ, what they're going to do is, is what we would spiritually expect them to do, you know. Otherwise, they, they would just be dumb as stumps. You know what I'm saying? So clearly, they're not going to do that. And if I send them away hungry for their own, uh, to their own houses, they will faint on the way. For some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. Immediately got into the boat with the disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. So this, uh, you know, it should act as an encouragement to you and I, right? You know, I said all of that in jest. Uh, but um, the encouragement is when the Lord has worked in your life and you've seen his miraculous hand and then sometime later you're in need and you behave in an ungodly way that is not faith-filled, I'm not encouraging that, right, at all. But we can go through those things and those failures and come out the other side thinking of ourselves, you know, I, I am clearly less of a Christian. Maybe I'm not even a Christian. I, you know, the Lord worked in my life, you know, in my 20s. But now that I'm in my 40s or 50s and I've, you know, got teenagers or big medical issues or, you know, then we doubt and we aren't reliant upon the Lord. You, you can feel really self-condemned. Especially when the Lord performs the miracle anyway. And you're left feeling really foolish and really stupid. You, you can get really self-condemned. Again, it's not an encouragement to just behave in an ungodly, irresponsible way. My, my point is... Don't be overly discouraged if you've done that. Here, the disciples are doing it. The apostles, right? And if you're thinking, well, you know, he hasn't breathed on them and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit yet, right? But he did send them out and they performed miracles themselves, right? Cast out demons, took care of people, 
and now come back and fail publicly <laughs> like this. And Jesus performs. And, and you can walk out of that thinking, I really am the worst of the worst. Every other Christian I'm in attendance with is clearly so much better, so much more mature, so much more the strong Christian. What is wrong with me? I mean, that's a worthy question, but don't be overly discouraged, right? You know, when the next occasion comes, maybe you're even going to have doubts in your hearts, but you can mechanically give the right answer. You know, even if you have doubts, you can say no. You know, just pull out the cue card and read it. <laughs> the Lord is going to care for me. I can trust him in this problem. You know, walk through it with him. Grow, mature, learn in the process. Accept the grace of God also and his love for each one of us as, as even as we fail. It's a tough thing to go through. Verse 11 then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. Now, they don't want a sign from heaven. Okay. If he does a sign, we can well imagine that what they're going to say is, yeah, but you do that by the power of the devil. Right. They're not here with any honesty at all. You know, this, this is ta childish taunting. That's all it is. They've already rejected Jesus wholesale. They've already got a plan to murder him. There is no genuine seeking of Jesus in this whatsoever. Remember that. Learn to identify it, right? Because there are going to be people that get in your face and say things that are at least reflective of this. No, if you're such a great Christian, then, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. You know, What about that time I saw you lose your temper? You know, yeah, well, I, I am human, by the way. You know, say, I am not Jesus. You know, I am perfect in the eyes of God. You don't want to throw that one at him. That'll never go over well. Okay, I'm just saying, you don't have, you don't have to get all hung up. On it, you know, he, so many times Jesus just quickly dismisses them, right? You know, I, I, uh, I I've shared with you before. I've done a, a ton of street ministry in the past when we lived in Bangor, and I was working youth ministry and otherwise. I spent a lot of time in Pickering Square and the parks and just walk into crowds of young people and just start asking them what they think about Jesus and just open up. And I, I quickly learned from passages like this and others to dismiss the naysayers, just to say right to their face in front of everybody, you, you don't even want answers. You're, you're not asking me that. And they, you know, they try to hook around and yeah, you, and they got all kinds of junk to say. You say, I, I know, I understand, but you aren't, if I answered you right now with a perfect answer, you would reject it and ask me the next question. You're just trying to circle around and attack wherever you can. You don't. I'm here to talk to the people that want to receive this message. And that would usually end. And it's disappointing, right? Because you've got to build up a whole bunch of boldness to walk into a crowd of 100 or 50 or even 25. And when it's shrunk down to five or two, but you've got the genuine ones at that point. You know, you can waste a lot of energy on 20 kids you know, when there's really only two that are even listening to you, so much better to expend 100% of your energy on the two that were actually listening. And if you're doing it publicly, maybe, you know, the other 18 might catch something also. So if you're going to do this, be sure in any setting that you do it to just dismiss the ones that you can quickly tell you don't want any answers. You're just a critic. You're a spy. You're just here to try to, you know, undermine what I'm doing. They show up. Oh, show us a sign from heaven, testing him. He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And, you know, my temptation is to move into, you know, accept the sign of Jonah that, 
as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I would strongly encourage you to, uh, on your own, uh, I, I need to clarify, I am not saying that the Shroud of Turin is the burial cloth of Jesus Christ. I absolutely am not saying that because I have no way to prove it. Will Cass's personal suspicion is the burial cloth of Jesus Christ is the Shroud of Turin. That's my suspicion. Uh, some amazing things uh, about uh, that piece of cloth. Uh, the image that's burned into it, burned into it, was burned in with an unknown source of light radiation. Okay? Only burned, so uh, imagine the fabric of a piece of cloth is cylindrical, right? It's a, it's a thread. Only one side was burned of that uh, fabric. I mean, study heat and know how completely impossible it is to do that. Uh, you you got to have such a, a very precise instrument to measure out the heat perfectly so that it just burns one side of the fabric. The image is three-dimensional, and it is two parts. So when they put this into a photo analysis, it produces two images, and they were struggling to sort of tune in, like what image are we looking at? One is the fleshly image that is there of the man that was buried in the shower. The second one is an X-ray of his skeleton burned into it. It has a very gaunt look. When you look at it, that's because there's a separate image of the skeletal structure, and they can isolate the two from one another. So you can see the skeletal structure separate from the image of the outer flesh. The individual that was in that shroud was both scourged and crucified and pierced through the side the same as Jesus. The coins that were laid upon his eyes were minted the same year that Jesus was crucified. So we know that it had to have happened, couldn't have happened before that date, had to have happened because the coins weren't minted yet, and they always laid the year of their death upon their eyes. In it, the flowers and the ointment placed around the body were only harvested around Jerusalem at that time in history, some of them don't even exist there anymore, at that time of year when Jesus was crucified. It goes on and on and on. The, there is blood upon the Shroud of Turin, the man that was doing the examination, first to determine, is this blood? Secondly, if it is blood, is it human blood? He had passed the first test, with, in fact, it is blood. And as he was processing into is this human blood, he was suddenly struck with the overwhelming fear of, am I literally handling the blood of Jesus Christ? Okay. Many aspects to the whole thing. Crown of thorns plated into his head. Uh, thorn thistles embedded in the cloth that came out of the head. All kinds of of things about the shroud. Uh, historically, miracles, a, ho a host of miracles attributed to that shroud. Uh, people deathly sick on their deathbed, dying, lost consciousness days before. There were two parts to the shroud. One was a face covering. The other one was the entire body wrap that they put upon the person. Um, the scripture records that. Okay, that's not just a historical element. It is also recorded in the scripture. The face covering was taken to a person in the uh, 900s uh, time period. And they, they, had, they were on death's door, lost consciousness days before its arrival. Uh, that was laid upon their body. As soon as it touched their body, they were made completely well, totally whole restored to 100% health, much like we re read of Jesus touching people who are deathly ill. They get up and start preparing dinner 
that level. And there are many occasions where the shroud or the face covering were placed upon people that were sick, some of them conscious of the fact that the shroud was coming to them, many of them so sick they were unconscious, and the moment that it touched them, they were healed. Uh, do your own research, okay? No sign will be given to you, right? Indicating the sign of my death, burial, and resurrection will be given to you, which is part of the reason that I think it is. No way I can say it, right? Because we don't know. But there's strong evidence, strong evidence of presentation for us to examine regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's been several documentaries done and some of the, the world's highest level of scientific research um, put into the shroud. One thing you will hear is uh, they, they did a, um, a radiological test to the cloth uh, to, to determine... Um, uh, when uh, it had been wrapped on the body and the radiological test came back saying that it was uh, far too recent to be Jesus, that it should have appeared to be much older. But within the examination, some of the scientists that looked at it said, we have to also admit that it was exposed to a source of unknown radiation, which, which would have made it appear uh, to be uh, much much newer. It has radiation contained in it. So on your own, when you can, uh, research the Shroud of Turin uh, here. Not going to give you any sign. <laughs> You're a bunch of doubters, so forget it, is what Jesus is saying. You get nothing. Uh, so, yeah, we got four minutes. I'll go a little further. Uh, he uh, And he left them, and getting into a boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. These guys got a problem with lunch. You know what I'm saying? And they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves saying, it is because we have no bread. And Jesus being aware of it said to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened, having eyes? Do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up, right? Twelve baskets and seven baskets. Then they said, twelve. Also, when I broke the seven and the 4,000, how many large baskets full of garments did you take up? And they said, Seven. So he said to them, how is it that you do not understand? I'll give you the same encouragement there. You know, they should know these things. They should be mature enough to decipher, to understand. They should be mature enough to bring lunch. <laughs> and then mature enough to understand that even though they didn't, the Lord's going to take care of us. And mature enough to recognize that even if we have to go hungry, right, he has food of which we do not understand. So many things they should understand here, and they don't. I take great encouragement in that. Because we recognize so frequently, I should be further along than this. <laughs> and, you, and you get feeling like I should just quit. And the Lord is patient, and the Lord is kind, and the Lord is gracious. And he continues to teach, right? He doesn't even brush us off with, you know, you're the dunce class. I just, let me, let me disciple these guys over here, right? He stays with those he's committed himself to, right? When he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, you've got to understand what he means by that. The reason that we get discouraged spiritually, right? we're not even going to tell our neighbors and those that were in fellowship, this is how I feel about my relationship with the Lord. Like I'm such a knucklehead that he's sort of abandoned me. <laughs> you know, he's teaching other people, but not me because I'm a, a Christian loser. We don't say that out loud. And yet very often that's the way people feel. Okay, when he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He didn't say, unless... You drive me absolutely bonkers. In which case, I'm going to find someone better than you. 
Right? It's, it's his command. We think that way because that's how we treat people. Right? I'm going to teach this person something. Oh, they've driven me crazy for a year and a half. I'm not teaching them nothing anymore. I'll go spend my time on somebody that will actually learn. That's not how the Lord treats us. He's kind. He's gracious. Long-suffering. Right? We, we read that, right? You know, that when we're filled with the Spirit, and then the fruit of the Spirit is, you know, patience, long-suffering, kindness. Long-suffering combined with kindness. We, we, we do that thing where we, we do. We endure and we're patient and we suffer for a very long time. Then we snap <laughs> and we lose our mind. And we act like, that's it. That's the finish line. That's as far as I can go, which is probably the truth. That's as far as you can go. That's not the, as far as the Lord's love goes. Right? When Paul said to the church at Philippi, and I just cling to that verse. You know, I know other people claim it as their life verse. You know, uh, Philippians 1.6, Paul said to the church at Philippi, I'm confident of this. I love that. I'm confident of this. He who began a good work in you, Jesus Christ, you didn't start the work, Jesus did. He who began a good work in you will be faithful, unlike us, will be faithful to complete that work. Not go halfway, not go partway, not, not go almost all the way. He will complete this work even under the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning he's going to continue that work even if it's to the day where you're resurrected or you're raptured in his presence. He's going to continue with you. You know, if, if we will let our hearts be lifted by that and, and get rid of the discouragement, get rid of the discouragement. That's our enemy, right? Read again, Revelation chapter 12. The devil is the accuser of the brethren. He stands before the Lord day and night accusing the brethren. And he's got my number. Whenever he's accusing me before the Lord, it's somehow ringing in my ears. Yeah, well, you're a failure. Yeah, well, you said this. See, you should have, you know, done that. And you didn't, and I'm just hearing it. We have to reject, right? You got to be dialed into the right station. You got to be hearing what the Lord broadcasts to you. And that comes right off these pages. Amen. If you don't open this book, Oh, man, the devil's got all the other airwaves. You know what I'm saying? The devil. and It's weird how it'll even come out of the mouths of people. <laughs> you know, you know, and you respect them and you love them and you think they're spirit filled and they just said the most destructive thing to you. They don't even know what they've done. You know, they're just off base a little bit and boom, it comes out of their mouth. And you're thinking, well, I should just quit right now. Right? Remember, right, Peter asked, who do people say I am? Oh, you're the Christ. Oh, you're, what do you, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the Holy Spirit and Peter, you know, hooray, I am the guy. I answered correctly. Did you notice that? Did you notice that he just said I was full of the Holy Spirit? Did you, anybody notice that? You know, Peter's walking around, breaking his own arm by patting himself on the back. And just, just a few verses later, right, He's violently rebuking Jesus, telling him, I will not allow you to go to the cross. Not, not I'll get in the way and swing the sword in the garden. It, it's literally, the, the way it's written in the Greek is like a father taking charge of a son and saying, I will not let you do this. And what does the Lord say to Peter at that point? Get behind me, Satan. So don't be surprised, right, when people less spiritual than Peter say destructive things. Don't be discouraged, you know. Don't, don't put a stamp on them like devil's mouthpiece, you know, saying. <clears throat> because tomorrow they might be filled with the Spirit and say the most powerful thing to you. We're weak. We're fleshly. The, the place you want to be tuned into that you want to hear from is right here. Right in the book. Let his Holy Spirit speak to you. That's what you need to hear. Amen? Amen? Well, that's more than the time we have, so why don't we stand and we'll pray.
Father, we are very grateful for your word, for your Holy Spirit, for the way that you communicate with us. I pray that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit, that we would hear from you, that we would obey you, and we would see your will accomplished in our lives. Help us to surrender to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.